Wow, that's a really small thing that packs a lot of power. And if I said that, you'd think I was talking about a phone, wouldn't you? But no, I am not. I'm talking about a 13-inch laptop that weighs less than two pounds. Have I caught your attention? It's the Benefit of the Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we are taking a look at the Lenovo ThinkPad X1 Nano. But before we get to that, I want to take 30 seconds to stop and ask you to please leave a review for the podcast. It's been a while since I've asked, so I'm going to ask right now. Please go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or anywhere else that you can leave a review because it really helps the show. And I don't have a hell of a lot of reviews yet, so I'm hoping to you know, bulk that up a little bit. If you could also tell your friends about this crazy awesome show you listen to all the time, I'd appreciate. Okay, enough of my begging, let's move on and talk about the ThinkPad X1 Nano. It's appropriately named because this laptop weighs less than two pounds, which is just crazy. I've had bowls of cereal that weigh more than that, and that's probably why I'm so fat. But getting back on topic, I've been pounding away on this laptop for the past few weeks, and now it's time to give it some thoughts. And we'll get to that, but first, we have to get to the news of the week. This week saw the show that really should have been canceled, MWC or Mobile World Congress from sunny Barcelona, Spain. Basically, everyone pulled out of the show or decided to put on virtual shows due to the pandemic and the fact that it's so much cheaper. But mostly, probably, you know, because of the pandemic. Not surprisingly, not a hell of a lot happened at MWC, as demonstrated by a tweet by Sean Kinney of RCR Wireless, who posted a video of Hall 3 at MWC, which was empty as a Dairy Queen next to a health club. In the 38-second video, just for funsies, I counted less than 30 people shown in the video in the middle of a hall, in the middle of a trade show. So, anyway, not a lot happened at MWC, so I'm going to cover that first before we get to the rest of the world stuff. So let's dive right in. Samsung gave us a bit more detail about its upcoming collaboration with Google concerning smartwatches. Samsung is calling the experience One UI Watch. According to Samsung, the experience between the Android phone and the watch will be seamless, citing examples like time zone translating over to the watch and blocked contacts also being blocked on the watch. The settings app will closely follow One UI as well with the colored icons and labels from Samsung's phone UI. Samsung also said that if you download an app in the Play Store, if there's a compatible watch app, it will automatically download too, which is, you know, why did it take this long? Samsung also said that the new watch experience will debut on its new watch coming this August at Samsung's next Unpacked event. So basically, Samsung held an event to tell us all to watch the next event so that we can see Samsung's new watch. And yeah, that about sums up the MWC 2021 experience pretty well. 
On day two of MWC, we got a keynote from Elon Musk talking about Starlink and global connectivity. Musk revealed that Starlink will become available globally in August of this year. Globally, that is, except for deserts, unless, of course, they've solved that 122-degree problem we talked about a couple weeks back. Starlink is taking pre-orders now for $99 per month and $500 down on the equipment up front. Musk also said that he expects Starlink to have over 500,000 customers by this time next year, which is up slightly from the 10,000 or so that he has now. He's nothing if not ambitious. Speaking of ambitious, Musk anticipates that a total of about $30 billion with a B dollars will be the total investment required for Starlink when all is said and done. One would think that about investment might be, I don't know, laying $30 billion in fiber while at the same time not blocking telescopes. But whatever, Elon, you want space stuff, so you're going to get space stuff. Lenovo also launched a series of devices at MWC, including five new Android tablets and a new Lenovo smart clock. The smart clock is really cute and expected to be available this September for $90. The clock rests on a plate with a Qi charger built into it so you can charge your phone with the device as well. That's kind of cool. The headliner of Lenovo's announcements, though, has to be the Lenovo Yogo Tab 13, which is priced at $679. And you can also double as a second monitor. The Yoga Tab 13 has a kickstand built into it, which you can use to stand the tablet up or hang it from a wall. The tablet uses a Snapdragon 870 processor, 8 gigabytes of RAM, and 128 or 256 gigabytes of onboard storage. There's a 10,000 milliamp hour battery that Lenovo says will last up to 12 hours, and that's all pretty slick. And Lenovo, you know, Call me. Seriously, though, I'm going on vacation at the end of this month, and I would love to take this with me as an entertainment device and as a second monitor for if... All right, let's face it. When I decide to get a little work done while I'm on vacation, hashtag workaholic. One thing Lenovo has gotten good at is figuring out how to use a tablet when you're not using a tablet. And using a tablet as a second screen makes a lot of sense. TCL also got in on the MWC game, launching a few new products at the show and a few more back on the home front. At the show, TCL launched the TCL Nextwear G, which is a sort of portable wearable display glasses. Basically, you plug the glasses into any device and it projects a screen in front of you. But they're only launching this in Australia with other regions announced later. Crikey. TCL also announced multi-screen collaboration, which is a sort of continuum-like service where you can look at stuff on your phone or your tablet and then move it over to your Windows 10 computer and then move it over to your tablet or your TCL TV or whatever. At the moment, only the TCL 10 Tab Max is compatible with the service, so it's really more of a wait-and-see product right now. Sorry, TCL. TCL also announced the MoveTime Family Watch, which is basically a 4G-connected watch for kids that can make calls video calls and texts and it's kind of neat but the real announcement as it pertains to the show comes next TCL also announced a trio of smartphones in the form of the TCL 20SE, the TCL 20S, and the TCL 20 Pro 5G, which are in mine, 
cliffs, and my hands, respectively. The TCL 20 SE is the budget option, starting at $189. It's powered by a Snapdragon 460 processor, has 4GB of RAM, and 128GB of storage. It has a massive 6.82-inch LCD panel that is simply gorgeous, and I've been using the phone for less than a week now, but I have some thoughts for you on it soon. Next up is a TCL 20S, which has a Snapdragon 665 chipset, also with 4 gigs of RAM and 128 gigabytes of storage. That has a 6.67 inch LCDs panel and a massive 5,000 milliamp hour battery. It also has a 64 megapixel camera on the back, along with an 8 megapixel wide sensor, and that's coming to Amazon for $240, and based on that alone, I'm going to go ahead and say and spend the extra 60 bucks. But the creme de la creme of the TCL lineup is the TCL 20 Pro 5G, which will be one of three phones that I take with me on vacation. The main reason for that is I'll be reviewing it while I'm on vacation. I know, work, work, work. Am I right? But I will counter that with tax deduction, tax deduction, tax deduction. <laughs> you want to write off your Disneyland ticket? Start a podcast, friends. Anyway, back to the phone. The phone has a Snapdragon 750G processor, 48 megapixel main camera with optical image stabilization, and 16 megapixel ultrawide camera. The display is a 6.67 inch AMOLED display with a <clears throat> Dutch camera at 32 megapixels. It's got six gigabytes of RAM and 256 gigabytes of storage and a 4,500 milliamp hour battery with Qi wireless charging and an 18 watt charger in the box. The phone will go for $499 on Amazon, link in the show notes. My review will be forthcoming, probably in the August-ish area, so stay tuned for that. And one more announcement came out of MWC, so let's get to it. Finally from MWC, Qualcomm unveiled the Snapdragon 888 Plus, which Ars Technica describes as, quote, the bare minimum upgrade for the new processor. And it's worth quoting Ars further here when they say, quote, those looking for a serious or even noticeable upgrade will be disappointed. This is the smallest plus upgrade Qualcomm has ever done. Like, ouch, I mean, it's true, but still. Ouch. According to ours, this is likely an upgrade only to fulfill obligations to partners that they'd already promised, like Xiaomi or Motorola, who have all promised to deliver Snapdragon 888 Plus phones in Q3. Suddenly, Qualcomm looked at this chip and was like, uh, what can we put in here? And someone else was like, um, could we overclock the CPU by 5%? And someone else was like, weak, but the lawyers say it'll work, so let's do it. The main source of consternation here seems to be that last year's Snapdragon 865 Plus added Wi-Fi 6 capability and 10% faster CPU and GPU. This year adds 5% and a 20% increase in the AI engine, which ours rightly calls out as marketing BS. So basically what we learned here is that MWC is a show that shouldn't have happened, Starlink is a thing that shouldn't have happened, and the Snapdragon 888 Plus is a thing that probably shouldn't happen. Great job, MWC. Great job. You brought us all the things that shouldn't have happened. So let's move on to the rest of the world, shall we? 
For decades, there has been pressure put on the government to reveal what it knew about UFOs and alien spacecraft. Well, now we know. The U.S. government released a report of 144 incidents from the last 20 years of UFOs, which are literally unidentified flying objects. These are aircraft that simply have not been identified. Many of them fly in ways that are hard to imagine or anticipate, but the report details zero confirmation that these things were from any other planet but ours. But they also couldn't completely rule it out. Um, what? So it turns out E.T. may actually be out there. The Army, Navy, and Air Force have all caught footage of flying aircraft maneuvering beyond the limits of human understanding, and the government is being real about it. We have no idea what's doing these things. It could be Russia or China. Or it could be aliens. That's not particularly comforting, but at least we've moved past the denial phase. Maybe someday we'll find out for sure what the deal is, but this report isn't it. So for now, let's all just hope that whoever it is, is on our side. YouTube TV has the balls to jack up its rates even further by tacking on an additional $20 per month if you have the audacity to want 4K streams. And this is right before the start of the Olympics, by the way, which is one of the most watched sporting events in the world. Very not cool, Google. YouTube TV currently has a base price of $65 per month, and this little add-on takes it up to $85. Just Get a cable package, people. The whole point of streaming TV was that it was cheaper than cable. Just goes to show the whole broadcast TV industry is broken as hell. Though I suppose I'm not one to talk since the streaming services I subscribe to probably all add up to about $65 per month at least. I'm not in the mood to do the math right now, but suffice it to say... It's a lot of streaming services, and the crappy part about all this is that the 4K streaming is just going to hit you in the data cap, so you'll probably have to pay more for that too. So again, honestly, just subscribe to a cable package and tell YouTube TV to go screw itself. And speaking of telling companies to go screw themselves, 520 people in Korea are suing the main three phone companies there, saying that carriers are offering incomplete 5G services because... Wait for it, their 5G sucks. And hey, in America, 5G kind of sucks too. The networks initially advertised download speeds would be 20 times faster than 4G LTE. And sure, theoretically, in a lab, they could be that fast, but they never are. Take it from the guy who drove 400 miles over the course of two days to test this stuff. 5G speeds, compared to what they were advertised as, are flat-out embarrassing. I'd be interested to see how this lawsuit shakes out and if any suits get filed over here in America, because let's face it, the 5G we were promised still isn't here yet, and if there's anything Americans love to do, it's sue people. If I were actually on a carrier that had the audacity to sell 5G speed for an extra charge, I would simply stick to 4G because screw you guys. T-Mobile offers 5G for every plan that they sell, and that's who I use. There's no additional 5G fee in there. I think 5G will eventually get there, but it won't be in the time frame that they told us about. It'll be years from now, and the only question is, how many lawsuits will happen between now and then? 
Speaking of lawsuits, one of the biggest stories of the week involved Western Digital MyBook Live NAS devices and the fact that they were dumping all their data stored to them, and for a moment there, no one knew what the hell was going on. It turns out the problem was in a zero-day exploit that hackers were able to use to factory restore the hard drives and just ouch. There's a lot of technobabble in this story, but the point is the exploit was found back in 2018, but by then, MyBook drives had been out of support for three years, having been EOL'd back in 2015. So now, MyBook owners are faced with a choice. Either disconnect the MyBook drives from the internet, which kind of negates the idea of having a NAS, or risking mass deletion of their files. Not a great choice. Users can still use the devices on a local network only or behind a VPN, but this is one of those situations where they really shouldn't have to make that call. Of course, maybe it'd be a better idea to just go out and, I don't know, pick up a new hard drive that isn't out of service? I believe Western Digital has several options to choose from. Oh, yeah. Um, probably not. CounterPoint Research released iPhone 12 sales numbers this week, and Jesus, Harold Christ, Apple surpassed 100 million iPhone 12s shipped within seven months of launch. That means Apple has shipped almost 500,000 iPhones per day every day that they've been on sale. And 29% of those, an overwhelming majority, have been for the iPhone 12 Pro Max. A much lesser number was on the iPhone 12 mini, so much so that Apple ceased production on them already. But still, 500,000 phones per day is simply sick, especially when you consider how high the margins are on iPhones. We're talking six, maybe $700 per phone in profit. Apple is just an unstoppable train at this point, and I think Tristan Rayner said it best in the Daily Authority newsletter when he said, quote, but for all that profit for Apple, which never ceases to leave me in awe, means Apple can keep building its ecosystem, its platforms, its stores, and its ridiculously profitable services. And its only real worries are how to keep supplying parts for 500,000 flagship smartphones being sold every day. Truer words, Tristan. Truer words, indeed. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go vomit for a little while. This next story is kind of a douchey, clever life hack. It seems police officers across America have a new strategy when it comes to fighting back against people filming them and holding them accountable, and it comes in the form of Taylor Swift. You see, across the country, when a police officer gets in an argument with a citizen, they've taken to pulling out their phones and loudly playing Taylor Swift songs. Why? Because if the video is posted to YouTube, it'll get a copyright strike and get taken down. Which is a good strategy, and very clever, except... I saw this video on YouTube. Now, it's true that YouTube scans videos for music for copyright strikes, and it's true that too many copyright strikes can cause an account to be suspended or deactivated. Honestly, in a way, I have to kind of admire this. Here's a clip of one of the interactions, and the guy at the end kind of sums up my thoughts on the whole thing. Are you playing pop music to yeah, drown out the conversation? No, he doesn't want you recording, so he's playing Why? Some music Why do you have to you hide? Can record all you want? I just know it can't be posted on YouTube. <laughs> this guy. This is this is the new this is the new hotness right here. Is that the reporting is so, so they can get a copyright screen. That's cute. So I don't understand if it's completely legal. Why would you worry about it being recorded? You'd only do that if you knew you were being an asshole. 
So yeah, playing Taylor Swift is a deeply flawed way of preventing videos from being put on YouTube. But you know what's a better way of preventing videos from being put on YouTube, officer? Now follow me here. Don't do anything that would cause someone to want to put a video up on YouTube. Just imagine the frustration of activists sitting down and going through the footage. Boy, you just wait until I tell all my followers about this guy. Let's just scrub through here. Okay. Oh, yeah. The officer was being very polite here. Oh, okay. Well, he's got a point there. All right. I'll just scrub a little bit more. Oh, oh okay. Right here. You see that reaching for his... Oh, wait. No, he just had an itch. Okay. Well... Well, dang, I videoed 30 minutes of this guy, and he was incredibly sensitive and understanding. Damn it! So this story broke at the end of last week, just as I was setting down to spend eight hours building my Father's Day present. It seems as I was building the Lego version of the Hubble telescope, the actual Hubble telescope was having some issues and continues having issues today. The telescope is offline and NASA engineers are trying to work through the problem to figure out where the fault is to try to get the telescope back online. And remember, the Hubble telescope is floating around in space with what amounts to a Texas Instruments calculator on board and NASA no longer has a shuttle program to go up there and fix it hands-on. So NASA is working through some potential solutions, including a backup computer and a set of components, but there's no telling if the telescope will ever come online again, which is a little sad. But the Hubble's been up there for over 30 years and it's had a good long life. Still, NASA's not giving up on the little space telescope that could, so hopefully we'll have some happy news about it soon. But the odds are not in Hubble's favor, so let's all just cross our fingers and hope that my little Lego Hubble telescope doesn't become more useful than the actual Hubble telescope. And some delightful news dropped this week as Jeff Bezos has selected another friend to go to space with him. Wally Funk is a female pilot who has been flying since the 50s. She was originally part of the Mercury 13, which is a space program for women back in the 60s. Despite her and her contemporaries doing basically everything better in training, NASA scrubbed the program in favor of men in a twist that I'm sure absolutely surprised nobody. But while he has been flying since she was a kid, she logged 19,600 flight hours in her career as an engineer and test pilot. She's trained over 3,000 other pilots during the course of her career. In short, she's awesome, but she's never made it into space. So Jeff Bezos is taking her to space along with his brother and another as-yet-to-be-revealed mystery guest who bid $28 million for a ticket on the spacecraft. Funk will take the flight, be weightless for around four minutes, and settle back to Earth, finally fulfilling her life's ambition at the tender age of 82 years young. Honestly, this has to be one of the feel-good stories of the year, and I'm personally excited for Wally to fulfill her dream of finally going to space. But just so we're clear on who's in charge here, and finally, Jeff Bezos has long been hoping to be the first rich guy in space, well, not so fast, Jeff, because Richard Branson announced this week that he will be flying into suborbital space aboard Virgin Galactic's VSS Unity rocket plane on July 11th nine days prior to Bezos's trip. So if you were wondering if the billion-dollar dick contest has started, that would be an affirmative. Virgin Galactic is Branson's blue origin rival, and of course, both billionaires want to be the first billionaire in space. Bezos chose July 20th to mark the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Branson chose July 11th to commemorate the 0th anniversary of Fuck You, Jeff Bezos, and to an extent, I respect that. <laughs> 
But I also recognize that none of this billionaire ball-waggling will detract in the slightest to the absolute pure joy that all of these people will feel having flown to the outer reaches of our planet and returning home safe and sound. But none of them, not Jeff Bezos, not Richard Branson, not whatever the hell Jeff's brother's name is, Bezos, none of them will appreciate the trip nearly as much as Wally Funk, who has literally worked all of her life to get there. I think the real winner here is Wally, and Godspeed to you, ma'am. Backend application API. Bugs, attachment, DevOps, backend, frameworks, backward, component, oriented, natural language, software, blue text editor, book margin, Boolean web server. Welcome to Tech Yeah! This week on Tech Yeah, I wanted to bring your attention to a device that you may actually need. It's no secret that computers, and specifically laptops, are losing their ports more and more often these days, so you may need a dongle to plug in various devices into your computer to help with your workflow. That's certainly the case for me. My MSI laptop has all the ports I could need, including an SD card reader, but almost all of my other laptops have USB Type-C ports in them, and that's no bueno for me because my microphone phone setup that I use for podcasting is strictly USB-A. Enter the Hutu USB Hub slash dongle. This is a dongle that plugs into one of the two USB-C ports on the side of the ThinkPad X1 Nano that you're about to hear more about. And just like that, I get three USB Type-A ports, an HDMI port for a second monitor that's critical to my workflow, an SD card reader, which is also important, and a USB Type-C port on the back for charging my laptop while the dongle is plugged in. All of that I get from a single tiny device. The cord on the dongle is about 6 inches long, so you get a little length out of it too. The body of the dongle is made of plastic with a soft touch grippy coat on the bottom so it doesn't slide all over the place when you're using it. And the main reason I got it was because of the HDMI out that's on there. As I mentioned, a second monitor is critical to my workflow, especially now that I'm writing for LifeWire, so having an HDMI out to go with my portable monitor was pretty huge. The SD reader is a nice bonus for sure. All told, this is a nice little dongle that costs around 30 bucks and brings a lot of extra utility to a laptop with limited I.O. And that's definitely something I can get behind. I've left a link in the show notes to it, and if you pick one up, as always, I'll get a little extra cut at no extra cost to you, and you'll have my thanks. But for now, let's get back to the show. I don't think it's any kind of secret that Lenovo and I have a pretty good relationship, and I also don't think it's a secret that I am a fan of what Lenovo has been doing recently. From the Duet to the ThinkPad Full to the ThinkPad X1 Extreme I reported on last week, Lenovo is doing some interesting and powerful things in the laptop space. And it's a damn good thing, too, because you know what? Lenovo is a computer company. Today, though, is more of a straightforward kind of device that Lenovo is making. It's got a little bit of flair to it, don't get me wrong, and that little bit of flair is that the laptop is so little. That's right. This is our full review of the Lenovo ThinkPad X1 Nano. 
It's hard to put exactly into words what it's like to pick up a laptop that weighs under two pounds. It's a featherweight. It's practically insubstantial. It doesn't add any weight to your backpack. It's delightful, to be perfectly frank, especially when you consider the power that's also packed into this tiny frame. I've used this laptop off and on for the last four weeks and exclusively for the past week, and the reason for that is complicated. First, I have a bad back, and using my laptop all day is really not good for that back. Not like killer killer, like I'm dying, still. And two, my day job workflow basically requires two screens, and while I do have a portable monitor I could use along with this, I also needed to run battery tests on the laptop, and this battery was not designed to push a second screen. Regardless, I managed and took a lot of ibuprofen along the way, but still, I discovered that it is possible to do my job on just this laptop with this 13-inch screen. It's harder, but it's doable, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. The laptop itself is a 13-inch laptop with a 2160 by 1350 resolution, which comes out to about 196 ppi. It's powered by an Intel Iris Xe graphics card. It's got an 11th generation Core i7 running at 1.2 gigahertz, 16 gigabytes of RAM soldered to the board, and there's a 512 gigabyte SSD in there, which I used about half of it. The case is flat black with a soft touch material. There's a power button on the right side and two USB Type-C Thunderbolt ports on the left, either of which can take power delivery, and there's a headphone jack. On the deck, you've got a decent sized trackpad, considering how small this laptop is. This is a ThinkPad, so you'll have the track point or touch point or whatever point I never use. There's a fingerprint sensor on the right of the trackpad two top firing speakers on the top of the keyboard, and a 720p camera-IR camera combo for Windows Hello and what Lenovo calls human presence detection. The keyboard is glorious. I could type on this thing for decades. The pitch and travel are wonderful. The keys have a little bit of feedback to them. The keys are very subtly backlit, which is a nice touch. The main hang-up I have about the keyboard is that in the lower left-hand corner, the function and control buttons are flipped, and I have no idea why. On a normal keyboard, control is first and then function. On this one, it's the other way around, which can occasionally make copying and pasting a bit troublesome. I got used to it, but I didn't want to. The display is very nice. It clocks in at 2K resolution, which means it's sharp and clear. I'll be honest, it's a little small for my old eyes. I was definitely wearing the old reading glasses while working on it, but the display is sharp and the colors are great. And by the way, the lid on this laptop does pass the one finger opening test, which surprised me. I thought a laptop that weighed this little would have trouble with that, but sure enough, it worked. The top firing speakers are decently loud and they sound okay. They're a bit hollow around the mid-tones and you lose a lot in the low end. That should be no surprise though considering how tiny the laptop itself is and how tiny the speakers have to be. There is Dolby Atmos on board which doesn't really help the sound but at least they can stick a Dolby Atmos sticker on the box. The laptop itself is also pretty tough. Lenovo says it has a mil-standard 810H rating, which I did not test extensively, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you see it. The software is Windows 10 Pro, and that really should be all I have to say about the software, except that Lenovo adds in McAfee virus protection and a few Lenovo pieces of software. One thing I really like about this laptop, which I don't think I talked about during my ThinkBook review, but anyway, comes in the form of human presence detection. Basically, your camera and IR camera watch you, and when you step away, the computer puts itself to sleep. When you come back, the computer wakes itself up, and before you can say fingerprint sensor, it's gotten you logged 
back in and ready to go. It's really cool, and honestly, all laptops should have this. I really, really like it, and I got to test it thoroughly since I get out of my seat so often. It's really remarkable how quickly your computer gets logged on and logged off. I can only imagine the amount of battery that was saved by this feature, and I will frankly miss it on any subsequent laptop that doesn't have it. If that doesn't work, there's also a fingerprint sensor to the right of the trackpad, as I mentioned before. The fingerprint sensor is a fast backup for when the human presence detection doesn't kick in. The keyboard also has its famous Lenovo nub on it, which is not its official name, but it's my official name for it now. The nub allows you to move the cursor in lieu of the trackpad. Considering they fit all of this onto the deck of such a small laptop, it really is remarkable. And that's really the point of this laptop. It's so small and light that it sounds like a cliche, but I can barely feel it in my bag. And just to prove a point, the last time I went for a 15-mile bike ride, I tossed this into my backpack. I didn't use it on the bike ride, but I just didn't mind a couple of extra pounds either. Now, according to everything I read, this computer can accept Windows 11, which is good news, so I'll be sure to take that for a spin as soon as this review is over. In terms of battery life, Lenovo claims about 9 hours per charge, and that's pretty consistent with my testing. I actually pushed closer to 10 hours, but that was when not powering the secondary monitor I need for my workflow. All the same, the battery life is quite impressive. Charging, too, is impressive. Lenovo ships a 65-watt charger in the box, and plugging in the laptop for 63 minutes got the battery up from dead to 80%. That's very not bad. The laptop also is Intel Evo certified, and among other things, Intel requires a 30-minute charge to get you four hours of usage. I didn't test that specific aspect of it, but this laptop charges very fast. Total charge time from 0 to 100, I clocked in around 83 minutes. Whatever the case, battery life on this laptop is solid AF. Getting to performance, I can say that this laptop works quite well, no stutters or lags, even with dozens of tabs, Slack, YouTube music, and more open. I was able to edit a podcast, though I only edited one podcast on the machine. It performed perfectly. I never had a chance to try editing a video with the laptop, so I can't speak to that. It seems I need to build a 4K video export test for laptops, as well as phones. Great. I ran two different benchmark tests for the laptop. From Geekbench, I got an OpenCL score of 14,955, a 1,462 single-core score, and 4,871 multi-core score. From Cinebench, I got 1,147 single-core score and a 4,331 multi-core score. As always, Geekbench provided a helpful list of other machines that scored similarly, but it seems when it comes to computers, that's a little different. On a phone, it'll tell you that the OnePlus 9 Pro compared similarly to a Galaxy S20 or Xiaomi, whatever. On a PC, they say, hey, your 11th generation Core i7 processor ran very similarly to an 11th generation Core i7 processor. Yeah, thanks. Clearly, I have some work to do here, especially since Lenovo is not shy about producing laptops, so this will not be the last laptop review you hear from me. And that brings us to pricing, and here things get a little weird. On Lenovo.com, if you were to look up the laptop, they have it for about $2,459 at a base price. The laptop I reviewed clocks in at an impressive $3,131, and suddenly I'm very glad that I didn't test out that mill standard 810H specification. Of course, if you hop over to Amazon, this laptop is basically $1,500, so take from that what you will. It's all a little weird. I would pay $1,500 for this laptop. I would not pay $3,000. 
that might just be me. So I guess the lesson we learn here is shop around. The bottom line here is that this laptop is a tiny powerhouse. No, it can't do everything that my MSI laptop with discrete GPU can do, but it can literally do 95% of my job on this laptop. That includes writing, opening a buttload of tabs, audio recording and editing, and even some light gaming. And I can do it all damn day, and that's not nothing. I would like more ports on this laptop, sure. There's only two, and one of them is used to charge. You think it's a coincidence that the USB Type-C dongle was the techie segment this week? It was not. But beyond that, there's very little to complain about here. Sure, I won't be editing videos on this and I won't be playing Fortnite, but to have a laptop on which I can do most of my job and it weighs less than a six-pack of soda? Where do I sign up? You don't even need to be a frequent traveler to appreciate just how small and light this is. It's just that light. Should you have to pay for the privilege of using a laptop that is that small and light? I don't know, but what I do know is that Lenovo has set a whole new bar for weight on laptops. They set a very high bar by setting a very low bar. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Lenovo for sending over the ThinkPad X1 Nano for review and remind you that Lenovo had zero editorial input nor preview of this review. These are my words. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.